All right, so we are back with part eight of our little series here on Bad Brothers. Episode eight is called The Last Patrol, and Sayer Payne is here again today. Talk about it. Sayer, thanks for being here. Of course. So we're coming up towards the end of the Bad Brothers series, 10-part series. We talked last time how I think after this, we'll probably move into the Pacific. A lot of requests to do that, but we're entering some unique episodes in Band of Brothers. The fight's kind of coming to a close. This is one where it follows a replacement, but not really a replacement, right? Webster, yeah, who was wounded, a part of the unit. He was a part of the unit, one of the original guys, wounded, then shows up and shows just the weirdness of missing anything when everything is as important as a war. It's not easy to come back into that. No. There's probably resent, feelings of resent, I'm sure, by taking a step off the line and then coming back. When other guys, they mentioned it too, they say, well, you know, it didn't stop these other guys from coming. Where were you? It's, it goes back to the malingering and weeding out. You just viciously, viciously identify and weed out malingerers. And it's very quick to ju- pass judgment. Yeah. As, a mal- as soon as you slip up, you're a malingerer, you're, you're a shitbag. Um, and some people are malingerers, by the way. Uh, it's true. And they are, uh, they will get people killed. And, it, and it, it's a chink in the armor that, can, it's like Christmas tree light, but but there's also people that are just victims of of this, and and maybe you know Webster could have been way off the line. I mean, Bastone, remember the hospital was like a church or something. I, they didn't have socks even, so to think that um, some of these guys getting injured and they weren't going to some nice hospital, they they were just getting out of the woods. So for them to be able to sneak back and go up the hill again. It's pretty easy, but like if you're like 50 miles away or something in a hospital in, in some place in France or whatever, what are you supposed to do? Like hijack a truck from somebody and steal it? And then I don't know. And then he's just, he's, he's a private or something. So he's listening to, you know, he's not an NCO and they're telling him you got to wait. Here's okay. Here's your, here's your plan. You got wounded in combat. <laughs> Let's not forget that. And you got to go through all these things and then we'll get you back. And he, and he listened and did all that. And he's like ready to get back. And then he walks into this sort of shit storm that isn't quite fair to him, but it's what happens. It is what happens. So you brought up a good point that I wanted to talk about where it's really easy to look at this because they've already at least twice showed people who have been wounded and then broke out of the hospital, you know, broke out and left the hospital to come back to join the fight. And I got it. That's, it could be a thing. If you're in a field hospital, it's one thing. If you're at an aid station at Bastogne, again, probably not that hard. The front lines aren't that far away. And there's certainly no, you know, intricate check-in procedure at that, again, that church hospital. Mm -hmm. But a lot of wounded went back to, went back to England. Right. What What are you doing from there? Yeah. I mean, there were plenty of hospitals set up across France, but it's not crazy for them to end up in England. You're not just going to, I got it. It's possible. It could always happen. But um, 
to your point, I think it's unfair to look at that and say, man, you should have been here. It's like, man, he, <laughs> that's a strong ask to somehow. And, yeah. Well, and by the way, let's talk about the guys who are giving him shit. They just came out of the, of what was for the rest of their lives, probably the worst month of their lives that they remembered that fast stone that never left them, they, you know, until 90 years old when they died as old men. They just came out of that situation, that that trauma of that environment of losing people um, uh, physically. Well, physically, like KIAs and just guys like core leaders like Garnier's gone from the war. He's gone from 101st now. He is done. Lost his leg. Joe Toy, all of those, those the, the things that happened. There's going to be a little saltiness. So we were up at, Sarah and I were at Fort Campbell a couple weeks ago for a week of the Eagles, and we're fortunate enough to have dinner with a couple 502nd veterans from Vietnam. And something they talked about was, so week of the Eagles is kind of a, an annual reunion of sorts at Fort Campbell for the 101st Airborne. And these guys were saying there's, you know, there was a lot of World War II veteran participation, and then that transferred to a lot of Vietnam veteran participation. But then there's this, just been this gap until the global war on terror. And now we have, you know, kind of it's creeping up there, more participation with our generation. Hmm. But there's this big gap between Vietnam, really, and the global war on terror, where these were soldiers, these were Soldiers in the 101st Airborne Division served one to 25 years. And the sense of camaraderie on the surface isn't there. And this is one little snapshot of an event. So take it with a grain of salt. But it, 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 I was thinking of that when I was watching this episode, because think of all of the things these guys have in common. But you pull one piece out of that, and all of a sudden the person's an outsider. Here we are at Fort Campbell. We've got all these 101st veterans going back as far as it can be. But just because this one group didn't have a war to fight, it ends up that there's um, like a different grouping, not intentionally. And I, you know, it's where there's so many, so many things in common in both places, but it just takes very little. And all of a sudden you're not the same. It's not very little. It's not very little. It's combat. And that's why it's Band of Brothers and not Band of Friends. That's fair. I think that in the training environment, it's a Band of Friends. And and that you're right. That that made it sound like I was downplaying what happened to Bastogne. I guess what I'm saying is, um, if you look at all these, say it's all these different chapters in their story, right? Um, You would think that pulling one chapter out of twenty wouldn't be that big of a deal, but it is. To those that were there, they didn't get a break. And, you know, we're all humans. And like I said, they're going through some shit, man. Um, it's so, those deployment settings are so, it's just that life or death struggle of there's there's aggression, there's violence. Um, there can be no weak links, like I said. You got to flesh them out. And if you're not... If you're not strong enough to be able to hang like that, you got to go. Dyke had to go. Um, Webster didn't. Hey, look, Webster, he didn't. They were screwing with him to test his metal to see if he still got it or something. Um, and it put it back onto Webster's. Uh, it put it back on Webster to now 
he had to reprove himself. Um, that's all it was. And it was up to him. Is he going to prove himself or not? So at the beginning of the episode, when Webster's trying to get in the truck with his old friends, the guys that he trained with and fought with for a period of time, and they kind of look past him. Um, that jerk was me for a little while. We had a platoon leader there that um, was wounded in Afghanistan. And we watched, I'll justify my actions first and then explain how um, I felt bad about it and, and hopefully mm-hmm. made it right with that guy. But we were having people die and, and lose limbs pretty regularly. That's what the IED threat was doing. People weren't spraining ankles, they were losing legs or arms and legs and or everything. And this platoon leader was a good dude, really liked him, really nice guy, mm-hmm. stepped on an IED. It like only partially went off, I think, during an attack we we're all a part of. And it didn't sever any limbs, but it really messed up his foot. But from my perspective, we all went on and continued to fight. And that was like the first big fight we had. And he missed everything from there on. It, it wasn't, though. We remember it like that. Like they might remember Bastogne as the worst of the worst because they just came out of it. But they were in D-Day. D-Day was not a pleasant time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Market Garden guys are getting just mowed down in open fields. I mean, Market Garden was not good. That was a mission failure too, by the way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they, they had massive battles before. And this same lieutenant you're talking about got RPG shot at him, at his yep. head. Um, yeah, this wasn't day one. That's what I'm saying. It, yeah. That was a big battle, but to the same exact scenario, there were other prior battles too that were also big, but easy to just kind of forget about because there were also more other big battles, that bigger battles also that came later or just more um, strenuous time uh, that happened subsequent to the injury. I'll move through this quick because this isn't, the show's not about me, but I, I feel like it, it applies a little bit here. So the, the operation is called Dragon Strike in Southern Afghanistan 2010. So it was a relatively big fight and he was wounded, went home, um, rightfully so, went through a lot of rehab, had a lot of work that had to be done to, to get him back to normal, but he missed everything. And I held that against him for no good reason. Didn't feel like he was a part of the team. I thought that he was, um, yeah, just kind of held that against him. And when we came home, he was he was posting a lot on social about what he was going through. And I, I sent him some messages that um, just said, Hey man, come on. Other people had it worse. You know, some people didn't come home. Some people lost legs. And he at one point said, you never know what somebody's dealing with. And that, that hit home. He was right. I was in the wrong. He and I have eventually since then um, caught back up. I apologized. I, I was entirely in the wrong. It wasn't him. Um, but I felt like that watching these guys kind of shrug him off, shrug Webster off after all he'd been through. They don't know. They don't. Yeah. Well, in all fairness, I was saying, Hey, shut the fuck up. You got all your limbs. What do you have to complain about? And um, it was a lot harder. You weren't there, man. You don't know what it was like. I did the same thing to him. Okay. I was one of those guys and I've since apologized too. Uh, I didn't think twice about making those statements at the time I made them. Uh, but after reflection and all of that, it's, it's shameful. And it is shameful. And I, you know, I think what's nice about Webster's situation was at least he got to come back and, and, and meet the guys, you know, our guy, he got his leg in it. Yeah. He got his, he didn't lose his leg, but he almost did. And he had no bones in his ankle. I mean, they were vaporized. They were vaporized. And then his whole medical care got all fucked up. 
um, that's a story in and of itself, by the way, for contemporary stuff. Um, um, it's just, that's shameful, the way we treated a, a guy leading troops in combat uh, uh, into machine gun fire, 101st Airborne Division, Taliban. Uh, but it's the emotions of war, man. They just, they, they, they will ravish you. So um, Webster eventually links up starts to try to find the company headquarters and Webster's clean. He's got all his new gear on because he just came from the hospital. And I think just one of the random little details in the show is you can, you can really see the contrast with the guys who probably haven't changed their uniform in Mm -hmm. a while. Dude, they are looking rough. That is a different color uniform at this point. Malarkey. I mean, yeah. And by the way, this actor, this is the same. I, I have always thought this is like the Sex Panther actor, by the way, Paul Rudd or whatever. They, they always confuse. I always used to think that it was him as this actor as Webster because he's always uh, stuck in my mind as like this right. uh, doppelganger. Um, I just feel like I got to say that. But um, it's, it's just it's great acting. The awkwardness, the awkwardness of it. Um, the hey, guys, I'm back. Uh, ex- facial expressions. And then the saltiness that they have on their face is just um, really sets, sets the scene, sets the tone. So there's a couple of things I want to bounce back and forth through here, but when Webster gets to the CP, there's a Lieutenant that comes in. We talked about this a little bit in the last episode, Lieutenant Jones. And uh, he's a new West Point Lieutenant. And he, he doesn't set himself up well to begin with. Comes in. I don't know what, how would you describe it? I was, I was trying to take a note and figure out like, what's the word I would use to describe him when he comes in? Well, awkward. Okay. Yep. And that's what it's like to be an officer coming in or any replacement. And you're always a replacement in garrison. You're just replacing somebody that they all got used to for the last nine months or whatever. You're always going to be a replacement. So it's always going to be awkward. And then you're the only officer in that whole platoon. Um, it's awkward. And then these guys all have combat experience together. Um, and you're very well aware that you went to West Point. Uh, I'm sure that like in the sense that, uh, and he has no experience and, and, and he's got to prove his worth somehow. And then that's the tricky part because you have officers that come in and want to prove their worth. Uh, but that can get people killed. They're trying to show that they have the, the gusto to be a wartime leader. And, you know, they're eager to, to go get it. Um, they've heard the stories. They've been training for this time. They're full of energy, by the way. They're a replacement. Um, do, you think that's and, what he, do you think that's what he's trying to do when he, he volunteers to go on the patrol right away? Like his first It doesn't come to me off as bravado or cockiness or arrogance. And I've seen that. I have seen that. Um, I can't stand that, but I think, I think the guy's just in a tricky spot. He, where he, he's kind of in an unwinnable situation because if he just jumps in and he's all friendly with these guys, he's not their friend. Um, and he didn't go because he, he, he is a Lieutenant and he didn't go through that stuff with them. So it's not the same. So it's not going to be all chummy, buddy, buddy, um, to where he's just going to be like, yeah, let's just play cards all the time. You know, you can't do that. So that's not going to work. And then if you come in as some hard charger who just graduated from West Point 
on D-Day of all days, you're going to get shit for that too. So he just, he's in a really tricky spot. Um, that's how I view that. Just now as a, as a 17 year old watching it, different, different perspective, right? Different perspective, but just having gone through the, the awkwardness of coming in as a fresh Lieutenant, um, with no combat patch amongst units that have all CIBs and deployments. Um, it is, it is awkward. It sure is awkward. Yeah. You're right though. He is a little bit awkward himself, even mm-hmm. outside of the situation. He's coming across a little clunky. Um, mm-hmm. I was going to say stuck up. I don't think that's the word I would use. I'll stick with awkward. I, that's what I mean. I don't think he's arrogant. He, he didn't come off as like this um, hard charger that wants to get a bunch of medals pinned on his chest. And, and it's called maybe be like a spotlight ranger, look good for the boss. I, I didn't get that. He was trying to uh, suck up to Winters like, hey, maybe if Winters, if I volunteer, maybe Winters will like me more that type of shit, which cannot stand. Um, I, I, I was not getting that vibe. I was just getting like, uh, what do I do with my hands? Like, I just don't, I'm, I'm new. <sighs> is combat over? Is it not? If it is going to go, I'm fresh. I'm going. Uh, and then other people are like, and then that's by the way, the naivety of war, because we keep hearing everybody else saying, Hey, the rear is where you want to be good. Um, you don't want to be up front. And it's this conflict with someone that does. And they did too at one point. They did too. They were jumping into Normandy and they were in the front. Um, but that time and, and the death and, and the wisdom that accrues after an experience like that is, uh, well, and remember, by the way, we also have to think about this too. This is very important. We kind of skipped over it. At the very beginning, um, Winters, the real Winters, is describing that um, we were getting a sense that we might actually make it. And because they didn't have that sense, uh, you know, I think you get into the fit. I think I accepted death. I felt like I just, I had this, I felt like I, I, I had a turning point once I thought that I, I just accepted that I was going to die. So I just stopped worrying about it. Just forget it. I'm going to die. In and Afghanistan? Then that, yeah. And that alleviates a lot of, um, things in my mind it clears my mind so i can focus on other things because last thing i want to do is worry about that shit because i can't control it um and uh so when winter said that i kind of relate that's how i felt when i came back from leave or whatever and we only had like three months left and like the big pushes were gone that whole dragon strike thing you mentioned was was done but you're still doing dangerous stuff though and oh those are tricky waters to navigate because sharks are still in it it's just you don't you were one day looking for them and eager to harpoon the shit out of them. But now you're just like, well, that beach is looking awfully good right now. So this is an interesting piece. You, you hit on it. The guys who have seen combat are, are, they're good to go, right? They've proven themselves. They don't need to keep doing it. Now they just want to go home. And I feel like we hear a lot. I've done some videos recently talking about the atomic bombings Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And a theme that keeps coming up are the people who had family that were probably going to be involved in an invasion of Japan. The idea being they may not have made it. Um, I've heard the, the podcaster Dan Carlin talk about, I, I want to say he had a family member who, same thing, was going to be involved in that or was coming of age to where he would have been involved in that. And it was like the great news that the war was over, right? But for every one of those, 
there's also another one who says, I'm going to miss it. I'm not going to get my chance. Right. And I know that's kind of weird, but I, in 2005, 2004, the year before I started West Point, I thought I was going to miss it all. And I know it's different. Iraq and Afghanistan, not anywhere near the same as, uh, as World War II. But I guarantee there's a lot of 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds in 1945 that thought, I'm going to miss this war. Hmm. That's why we gave them Korea. <laughs> Jeez. No, I, I actually almost, same time frame, right? We're same age, 0408. Um, there were many, you can ask my wife, who I met as a freshman, you know. I, I, I was itching and I wanted to drop out of college many times. The only reason I was in college was being an army officer. Um, and then I guess society says I needed that piece of paper. But um, yeah, I don't have that feeling now, of course, but uh, I, I relate to that. There's something about this mission that's interesting. It's not a big mission. There's only 15 people that end up going. So they, you know, if anybody hasn't seen the episode recently, they, they ask 15 soldiers to go across the river. Um, they're in an area called Hagenau, which is right on the border with it's actually a decent sized city um, on the border with Germany. And across the river are German forces to some degree. And everybody's kind of sitting tight. And I think we'll come back to this concept of fighting towards the end of a war in a little bit. But they want to send 15 soldiers across to grab some prisoners, bring them back for questioning. And, excuse me, they want to send uh, 15 soldiers over. It's not a massive mission. There's, you know, again, just 15 people involved. There's a lot of people with input here. It seems like every time you turn around, somebody else, including Private Webster, is talking to a commander about different ways to go about this operation. It seemed like more than normal. Did you get that vibe? I don't know. I don't mean like, I don't mean like this is going to suck or this is going to be good, but like every other person had an opinion on who should go and who shouldn't go. And like, it is interesting, but I would think after Bastogne formalities are quite loosening quite up at the end of the day. I mean, these are, they all have rank and they respect the rank, but it was like, well, it's like when we came back, we started calling our commander by his first name the commander all through deployment, our company commander. And it's like, as soon as we got back, he went to a, just a different company. We were all in the same battalion and now we're all on first name basis, right? He still outranks us, all this stuff. Um, and we still listen to what he said though. And I, I feel like that they probably morphed into this because um, think of how many people are gone too now. Cause I agree with you. It does stand out. I'm just trying to think about it in terms of uh kind of their timeline or chapter that they were in. Uh, So many were gone at that point of the originals. You know, Compton's out of there, remember? Um, He got pulled off the line on the last episode. We didn't really go into that much, but he's gone. Um, Winters is gone for the most part. He's sort of the man in the high castle that were unreachable in the set. It should be, kind of. Um, Yeah, and, and Webster is an original, by the way. So... Uh, that, that kind of makes sense to me. They're almost like peers. Uh, I think they probably evolved into peers in a, in a, in a different way. Gotcha. Um, but well, yeah, you don't want too many cooks in the kitchen. That is for damn sure. 
one thing I thought was funny as this is playing out, I believe it was second platoon that was picked for this mission. And uh, always second platoon. But that's what, but it's also always third platoon. And it's also always dog company. And it's also always HHB. It's always, <laughs> right? In my case, it was always second platoon. No. <laughs> exactly. And in my day, it was a lot harder than it is now. I have to say that for the record. Um, just, it's obligatory at this point. Um, no, I think, well, of course. I mean, that's why I don't like using the word fair at all. Because um, everybody has a different definition of it. My kids do. Everything's unfair. I'm in the legal world. I'm an attorney. Everyone, no, it's not fair. Um, so you can kind of get in your head and just start seeing your own sense of reality, meaning everybody's against me and they're all here to screw me over. I mean, that if, if that's how you think, guess what? That's what's going to happen. So this, the name of the episode is The Last Patrol, and this 15-person mission is, is what they're talking about. And it ends up being their last patrol. There's more to, to hit on here later. But if you think back to when you were in Afghanistan, what, when did you feel more pressure? Was it before your first patrol, before you landed on the ground, that kind of, that window? Or was it before the last? Because we also had a very definitive last mission. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, do you remember which one you uh, felt more stress around? I don't know. The last one had a lot of stress. That's for damn sure. Because we almost made, you know, it's like we're almost there. Um, but at the beginning, it's super stressful because you don't have that experience under your belt. And there's a lot of what ifs that can go in your head. Um, it's hard to tell. I mean, it was, I know the middle part was not as stressful. That's the complacent part. I guess you can call it that. Cause you just don't give a fuck. Um, that's that acceptance part I was talking about, but then that last, those last three months when I came back from leave, I was optimistic, but, um, at the end, it's real difficult, especially when you're doing real combat operations. Um, and people die at the very end, you know, someone died that very last mission we had. And it really sucks. Um, I'd also like to say, by the way, that last patrol mission is, I mean, that's what we do. That's like a GWAT mission every fucking day, by the way getting random ass intel from higher up telling you to do a bunch of bullshit. Um, these guys weren't used to it because they were doing the big ticket stuff, right? They were, they were jumping into Normandy. It was like, it matters. Holland, it matters. Hold the line in Bastogne. We're surrounded by the Germans. Good, good. Um, this is just what most people would think is just a random arbitrary thing that Somebody came up with, someone had an idea. Someone had an idea. Let's go check these buildings out. I mean, that is what you do every single day. And where, where the guy gets blown up and dies in the basement, um, that to me is a GWAT, at least an Afghanistan deployment for the most part. You got, we had pockets of operations, but I think the D-Day veteran was in like 40 days of combat over those 365 day sort of time frame. And when they were, there were a lot of like these kind of massive, sort of engagements and then you know 
even even these guys went back to England in between and all this. Now here, what you have them doing is kind of in this, they're pulling security. They're safe, but they're not safe because they're still kind of taking rounds, still taking pop shots, still taking uh, mortars and indirect. Um, Germans are right across the river. So you're still in Indian country, but it's, so you have to pull guard and then, yeah, you got to do patrolling. Um, so that is, I think that's the closest reflection of kind of modern day where, you know, Intel guys are giving you information and you got to go, uh, got to go do it. Cause someone had an idea and then you're not, you know, it's a piece to a bigger pie, of course, but it's not as dynamic as something like D-Day is where everybody gets it. Everybody gets D-Day. Not everybody gets that patrol for those two guys. Now those two guys could have turned up exactly where the CP is. And we dropped around and dropped that whole house and killed like colonels and German generals and totally disrupted that whole unit to set up friendly forces to come in. Maybe that is what happened, but I'm just saying at the down level, all you know is, are you fucking kidding me? I need 15 guys to do what? Go across the river at night. Are you fucking crazy, man? I'm not doing that shit. Um, I mean, that's what it feels like at that level. My impressions. Yeah. I, um, so to talk the, the stress level, I 100% feel that I was more stressed on the last mission than the first. And it's not even close because the first, I had no idea what we were getting into. I was invincible, right? 22, 23 year old. I couldn't be hurt. Those things aren't for me. Um, but after 365 days or whatever came up right there towards the end, I realized that was not true and how much luck was involved. And I mean, every step of the way to the bird that picked us up in that field in Zari district to fly us back to Bob Ramrod, those last few steps, I thought this is going to be it um, for me, for the guy behind me, for the helicopter. Um, but for what I, for me, it was that last one. The stress was just like, I don't know, like it would be worse happening than, than some other time. I mean, in, in it was a terrible picture. mission. It's we were just talking. I was kind of like dreamlike um, looking back on that. And it is hard to, hard to reflect. And it does, it's the fatigue that sets in the combat fatigue, um, the exhaustion can, you know, I just, I can't to be at the top. Cause you have, you know, you have to be at the top of your game for all of it. And um, it's very hard to do that continually day after day. Cause any, I mean, this, the guy that died here was his own hand grenade, you know? And it's like, that sucks. You know, all of it sucks. Um, and maybe, by the way, these two guys didn't know shit. You, know? you, you brought up a good point. Um, I hadn't made the comparison of this type of mission to the GWAT missions, um, but the smaller size and all of that, I, I, I got it. Um, but it's a good point about how many times did the soldiers, I mean, everyone from winners on down, essentially saying, I have no idea why we're doing this. And that doesn't mean as in we don't know what this does to fit into the bigger picture and to your point market garden everybody got it bastone everybody got it. um even foy everybody got it um mm. but now all of a sudden it's i don't know exactly what this does to help win the war and i think that's a good fit to gwat um it doesn't mean that the purpose is wrong but it's not as easily understood all the way down the chain as jumping into normandy everybody's got that you don't have to spend too much time explaining why that's important, but these little missions like this, 
um, whether it has a incredibly valid purpose or not, getting that across is, is tough. Remember, that mindset was solely focused to win the war. And that's probably what made them so frustrated. It was like, we're only doing things to win the war. Um, and we're not going home until we win the war. That is the objective is win the war. Win the war, win the war. Everything had to be about that. And like, and in a GWAT timeframe, and we're talking about it right now as we're withdrawing from Afghanistan, um, reading articles about reflection of the last 20 years and whatnot. And what we had was 12 month iterations of these patrols. And it wasn't about winning. I mean, it wasn't winning the war. It was about enduring 12 months and doing what you can and going on all these fucking patrols everywhere. Um, it's a completely different mindset than what they had back then. It really was because we knew we had to do our time. The people before us had to do their time. Um, we knew what unit was going to replace us. We knew what unit we were replacing. Um, we knew when we were leaving, give or take a month or two. It, these guys knew none of that. The whole focus, the whole mentality was win the war. And why we haven't done that since is bullshit, in my opinion. And that's why we've, we've lost Korea, we've lost Vietnam, and now we've lost Afghanistan. I don't know what to say about Iraq. I don't know right now. But that's reality. So one of the challenges here, you hear the guys talking over and over again about how the, the Germans are all but beat. And this was a unique circumstance in World War II that, that there's certainly other situations like this. But, you know, if you look at World War I, for instance, that could have been decided at any point. Really, by the spring of 1918, Germany probably couldn't win anymore. Mm-hmm. But peace negotiations were underway. And, and, um, but in World War II, after D-Day, it was going to be a stretch. The Eastern Front was collapsing for, for Nazi Germany. And they really threw everything they had into the Battle of the Bulge. And by the time we get to this episode, this is after the Battle of the Bulge, after the Germans have been pushed back to their border, they've lost the war. It's just a matter of, of how long it's going to be before they sign those surrender documents. Um, so you get into this, this crazy debate about, not debate, but the crazy thought around being the last casualty of a war. Nobody wants to do that, right? You want, right. You want a lot, every life to matter. And there's, I was doing a little research today and found something that I need to spend a lot more time on. But there was supposedly an American soldier in the First World War um, that was killed a minute or two before the armistice was signed. As in, for he, I guess, had been demoted and, and had some problems and was on a patrol, came across some Germans and charged at 1058 or something. So the armistice had been signed, but it didn't go into effect until 11. And his guys were saying, don't do that. What are you doing? The Germans weren't shooting. And they even yelled at him. But he kept going. And as he got a little too close with his bayonet, the Germans shot and killed him. And he was supposedly the last killed in action. It didn't matter. There was nothing gained for that. And I think that's what the guys are getting at here. Um, They want to know their life matters. They want to know the sacrifice matters. And getting to that point. Yeah. Um, you tell the truth, right? Tell the truth when you're in charge. Give them a why. Uh, sometimes you don't know the why, but it's the truth. Don't make up shit. Because um, that's reality. Because at the end of the day, guess what? You're taking 15 fucking guys and going across the river. Um, 
that is the top down things. And then that's where the nuance happens and how you can mitigate some of those orders and whatnot. And we definitely see that later after the, this patrol. So they kick off on the patrol to go across the river and it, it, it looks smooth the way they show it at least. Um, there's an incident where a soldier throws a grenade in the window and, and runs in too soon after you got some of that adrenaline pumping. Um, he would die of those wounds by the time he makes it back, but they do get in the boats, a couple German prisoners come back across and a random little note here that I thought was impressive when they showed the machine guns firing back across the river to protect them in the boats, which for what it's worth, you're under fire and then you get in some boats and cross a river. That sounds awful, right? Just Terrible. completely exposed. Jesus. But when the machine guns are, I think Liebgott was on one of the machine guns. And as they're firing back across the river, it shows what a machine gun actually looks like when it's firing, right? First off, they're not shooting at people. They're shooting at muzzle flashes. Can't see anybody in the dark at that distance. And the bullets aren't this perfectly straight line for 500 meters or something. You can kind of see them spraying off in different directions after they get past, you know, 200 meters. And I think it shows just a random little piece of, I don't know, that's how machine guns operate. They're not perfect. Um, well, I was also, you know, I was wearing my noise canceling headphones watching and I heard that 50 open up and I was like, hell yeah, because it's the right sound. Of, I mean, they got it. So I immediately put a smile, put a smile on my face when I heard that 50 chunking. I think that was a quad 50, an anti-aircraft weapon because really? they showed it a so couple times yeah. yeah yes yeah i was one i was like where's the, there's a 50 here i love it um because i love 50s and um no you're totally right and by the way that's why they didn't shoot any boats and, and it's harrowing but they were probably missed from they're missing them like crazy it's nighttime they're they're shooting with open sights back then um at anything that moves kind of and they know the bad guys are across the river that's it because it's not like the Germans would have quickly been able to report, hey, we got 15 Americans, they're in building uh, one, two, three, and uh, they just took two guys and they're egressing south or something. It, no, it's they heard pop shots and everybody knows they're all, everybody's itching or not itching, but they're on edge. And they probably heard gunfire coming from a vicinity from the southeast or whatever. And um, yeah, light it up. Uh, start hitting the other side. Just do what you can. Hell, drop mortars on the other side of the river if you got to. Do what you can just to show uh, don't fuck with us. I'm sure that's what the Germans were doing. And, and you miss a lot. You miss a whole lot like that. You miss a lot of rounds, actually. So they they make it back from the mission. One soldier's killed. And this crappy part where they did such a good job that Colonel Sink or someone higher than that even says, well done. Now do it again. So this, mm -hmm. you know, get the adrenaline up and pump in because you're right towards the end of the war and now you got to do it again. So Winters comes in gives a brief and there's two things he does that, that um, are connected. First, he tells them you're not going. Here's the plan. Tomorrow morning, I want you to brief me that you did this. Couldn't find any Germans after you get a full night of sleep. Also, you're moving off the line tomorrow. And um, so that last patrol really was the last patrol, but I wanted to get your thoughts on that. The, I mean, he's, he's lying, right? He's going to send up a false report. Well, that's, um, 
it's judgment on the ground. He's putting his name on the line. Um, I agree with it. I mean, I did it. And maybe I did it because winners did it. I don't know. I've done it. Was it you? I've called up buildings that were looking for who knows what, weapon cache or something. That last mission you're talking about, we didn't do. We were supposed to clear all these buildings um, to find I don't know what. We were going home in two days or something. Um, as soon as we got off where somebody shot a damn RPG at our helicopter coming in. It's like, man, fuck. Um, damn it. But um, yeah, we didn't clear those buildings. We didn't clear them. No fucking point. Um, I don't know what else. Because um, when you're an officer, you have to live with those decisions that you make. Uh, they nobody can they can't object at the end of the day the end, any enlisted guy they can't object they must do what you say that is the way at the end of the day that is the system and that's a heavy burden on your shoulders and uh um unless it's illegal i want to throw that in there but this was not an illegal order by any stretch it wasn't a no this is just um calling an audible on the ground is how i view that I'm calling an audible. Yep, I understand the coach wants he wants a run. We're going to do a pass or whatever. We're going to run the clock out. Hell, I'm just going to take a knee um, because I'm the quarterback and I'm looking left and right and I'm the one who has the read. I'm the one. I'm the one who has to. I'm the one who calls hike. You know, at the end of the day, um, that's winners. Those are military officers, and. Um, and that goes back to uh, spears and, you know, action speaking louder than words. And uh, do your guys think that, uh, well, you know, spears, they thought he was a badass. You know, that's a way. Well, with winners, they thought that winners had their had his back. And both of those ways can get people to um, to do amazing things and, and selfless service and not think not care for about their own selves. And they care about the person to the left and right of them. And the reason they care about the person left and right of them is because that person cares more about the people to the left and right of them over their own personal self. And, and um, it just goes up and down the unit uh, or it should go because we're not robots. You know, the military says mission first people always, but I don't like that. I think it's people first mission always because people are the ones who accomplish the mission. They're not robots, not fucking cannon fodder. Um, it's a duty and responsibility to those that raise their hand or whatever. Um, Cause they don't have the right to say no, they don't. I think what Winters did here, my read on it was he didn't, you know, we were just talking about how sometimes it's hard to place the meaning of a mission or the, how it fits into the bigger picture. And I think he looked at it and said, we're pulling off the line tomorrow. Um, I can't really tell what the Intel is doing here. We know where the, we know the direction the war is going. Um, and to him, losing one of his soldiers would have been a bigger impact on his life than being demoted or pushed out of the army. So that, to me, that was his decision. He said, this thing is more important than this thing. There we go. 100%. And, yeah. I mean, I, that's, by the way, that's right. There's kind of my, um, my challenge with civilian world is what's called a manager versus a leader. And, uh uh, Dick Winters is a leader. He, he's 
personal risk, let's say career risk, financial risk, um, fear of judgment risk, um, fear of his boss, displeasing his boss, um, taking all those risks and uh, doing what his judgment thinks is best for his guys. Um, Whereas a manager is just going to be the mouthpiece. They're not going to call an audible. They're not considering the people doing the thing. They're just um, going to do it just because, right? And when you arbitrarily follow rules, um, people get killed. That is literally, that is what happens. Um, I want a little bit of rule breaking in there. I want my kids to be a little bit of rule breakers. I don't want my kids to be these just absolute followers that do exactly as told every single time. I want them to be able to think for themselves and maybe make a different decision because I'm a 30 something year old and you know, they're, they're a different age too. And they've got different perspectives from their little eyeballs and their vantage points alive. I'm not right every single time. Colonel Sink is not right every single time. And S2 sure as hell ain't right every single time. I like it. That's uh, I think it's an awesome way they ended that episode. Just a, a really positive note showing the care for the soldiers above all else. Um, mm-hmm. Again, we spend so much time focusing on the mission, so much time focused on winning the war and doing these great big um, operational and strategic moves, Bastogne, D-Day, Market Garden. And then you get down into these little pieces, you know, the very individual fight and Winters might've saved a life there. One, two, four, whatever it is. I think it's an awesome way they ended that episode. And he saved them the whole time he was there, even though lots of people died, many died. Um, But despite that, Winters kept people alive. Inaction and bad decisions uh, like Dyke or uh, the the person that I was describing about that West Point lieutenant, the ones that want the medals on their chest and and they got something to prove, they get people killed. goes back to the art of it art of leadership some of it's natural born learned upbringing i don't i don't freaking know um i don't know uh but it's he just the whole time the whole series of dick winters is just a timeless example of leadership and it and i just what i'm trying to say is it can be applied in all walks of life it works um not caring about what your boss thinks of you and just worrying about taking care of, you know, the people that you're really responsible for overseeing, you take care of them. They will take care of you. You don't have to, you don't have to show off about it. Don't have to worry about what your boss thinks. Just keep doing what you're doing and you're going to get good results. Just have the faith, enjoy the process while you're at it and just keep moving forward. Even if it's 1% at a time. Um, And then listen, 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 listen to ideas, brainstorm, um, maybe that's what they were doing, by the way, with this too many chiefs in the whatever. I want to say too many chiefs in the kitchen, but you get my point. Um, uh, it's brainstorming and then getting rid of all of the bad ideas and then going with whatever top one you have left and then going with it. Um, communication. And then, of course, collective suffering. I like it, man. It's all about people. All about people. People, people first mission always. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there for episode eight, but coming up next is episode nine. It's called Why We Fight, and that's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. 
If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.